0: Thank you, Gordon and Barbara, for our music this morning. Welcome to those of you joining us on live stream. We invite you to turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. We read in our service a few minutes ago this text, verses 1 through 11. Chapter 4 kind of summarizes and illustrates what we learned in chapter 3. So we will begin with that summary of that. And then chapters 5 and 6, as we get to that in Galatians, applies many things to the believers in wonderful ways, as we know, like the armor of God and those kinds of passages. So uh, chapter 4 is an interesting chapter, and uh, we'll talk about an allegorization, believe it or not, that Paul does in chapter 4 as he talks about law and grace. Let me... uh, ask you to to think in this way as we begin. Throughout the history of the world, there have been a few huge changes that happened in this world because of man's sin and because of the way God deals with it. Let me give you an early one and a late one. Number one, the change from the Garden of Eden before sin to the world after sin. That was a big change, wasn't it? We call it from that dispensation of innocence to the dispensation of conscience. Once Adam and Eve sinned and sin entered into this world, everything has changed. The world is completely different. There was no death. There was no sickness. There was no hatred. There was just no sin. But that affected the whole world and everyone in it, you and me, and everything that has happened since. That was a big change. Well, we've been under that burden of sin ever since then. But if we could look to the future, there's coming a time when Jesus Christ will come a second time to this earth. And when he comes to this earth, he is going to establish his kingdom and rule on this earth in his kingdom for a thousand years. We won't restore the Garden of Eden 100%. but it will be restored almost to that. There will still be some sin even in the kingdom of God. But the world is going to change when Jesus Christ returns from the way it was before to the way it is when he rules and reigns on this earth for a 1,000 years. That is a huge change. So that one happened way in the beginning. Another one is coming in the future, and praise the Lord for that. A third one that I would say that changed everything was when Jesus Christ came the first time, and it's what the book of Galatians is about, and that is about law and grace, or as we say, the Old Testament and the New Testament. That time of Israel, when uh, Israel was in the center of God's will, to the time of the church, when the church of Jesus Christ is doing God's will in this world. That big change, from what we knew before Christ came and what we know now is a huge change also. And all of those affect the whole world. All of them have affected us. The first one affected our, we are sinners because of what Adam and Eve did. And yet in the future, you and I will be living in resurrected bodies on this planet without a sin nature, uh, ruling and reigning with Christ. That's great. But what Jesus did when he came the first time is to die for the whole world and make the whole world savable and make uh, salvation available to anyone in this world who wants it and who will come to him. That is affecting the whole world. Look what, look what sin did. When Adam and Eve sinned, basically Adam or, or Eve, we, we have in that discussion in Genesis chapter 3, Eve was thinking... I can do better than God. Here is what God said we should do, but I think this is a better way to go. Now, of course, Satan was influencing her and tempted her, but she gave in to it, and then Adam also. And uh, by the way, it was the, the whole sin of the race is attributed to Adam because of his failure. And so when human beings decided, I can do better than God, sin came in. Not too long after that, Cain killed Abel, and God had, before, before that, when Cain and Abel were, were still alive, God said, bring an offering to me, and Cain brought the works of his own hand rather than a blood offering, and that work of his own hand was Cain saying, I can do better than what God asked. I can do it with my own hands. And folks, what sin has been ever since then is human beings saying, I can do better than God. When God says, come to me with your repentance, leave your sin, and let me save you by my grace, human beings ever since have said, I think I can do better than that. I think I can work, and I can be good, and God will accept me because of who I am and what I've done and all the good things that I am. That's the way human beings think. And of course, that's not true. And what Paul is saying in this book is uh, you have to come to Jesus Christ by faith and not by your own works. Now, what we're going to see in our chapter or our verses this morning is God finally decided to put human beings in school to teach them the right thing. And that school that he put them in was called the Mosaic Law. I'm going to put you under law for 1,500 years so that you realize you can't do it on your own. So you realize that your goodness will not save you. And the final exam is when Jesus Christ comes and you see him as your Savior and you accept him by faith. That's the final exam. So I want you to notice as we go to our passage this morning, in chapter 4, How this develops. And notice my thoughts. You have them in your bulletin or on the screen that we'll talk about Jew and Gentile a little bit. We do that because Paul's talking to the Galatians. And up there in Galatia, north of Israel, up in that land where he's already been on one missionary journey, many Jews got saved. And of course, the Galatian Gentiles got saved. And so those churches that are left up there in that area of Galatia have both Jews and Gentiles Uh, both of them have had to come to Jesus Christ by faith. So he's going to talk to both of them. I want you to notice, first of all, as he addresses the Jews that were under law, and you might say, they were in school, and they had to grow up and graduate. Well, notice the way he says it in these first three verses. I say that the air, notice the three words I have underneath that, heir. air, and child, slave, and Lord. Notice how they all appear in these verses. I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master, or that would be Lord of all. But he's under guardians and stewards, you know, all the teachers that you had in school, until the time appointed by the Father. Now he makes this application, even so we, when we were children we're in bondage under the elements of the world. Now these Jewish people had had the, this way of doing it. They put their children under guardians and stewards and we we learned about that word schoolmaster last week the tutors and those children had to be under those tutors until they got old enough to kind of stand on their own until they came into adulthood and somewhere in their teenage years, uh, evidently. And they they had to be under that from the time they were very small children. So you, you might have a child of the head of the home who is an heir of all things in this house. He's the heir of the whole estate, but he is learning right next to someone who is just a servant child, someone who doesn't have any uh, heirship. But that little child, he or she, has to learn along with everyone else in school, too. We see that sometimes, right? The, the little uh, grandchildren of the King of England or something, you know, they're, they're in school along with the other kids, but they are heir to everything. That's kind of what Paul is talking about here when he's talking about Israel. Now, Israel is this child. Israel is this child that. God, he's an heir to everything God has, but God has to put him in school for 1,500 years under the law to teach him what is right. Israel is an heir of God. Israel is the covenant elected nation of God. And as I brought a message last Sunday night, uh, Israel has a future, and God will, when he returns and sets up that kingdom, he will bless Israel again. And they will be God's number one nation in this world for a thousand years when he reigns on this earth. So they have a future. They, have, they are heirs to that if they will believe and if they will come the right way, or we might say, if they graduate from school, which some have and some haven't. The Old Testament believer, let me remind you, whether we're talking Abraham before the law or David under the law, or Isaiah, or Elijah, or uh, whoever, they had to be saved by faith also. No one was saved by keeping the law. No one became a child of God, a son of God, as we talk, uh, as a child of God, by keeping the law. They had to believe. So Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. David believed the covenant that God had made with him. David became a believer. By keeping the law, all you could realize is, I can't do it myself. That's what you have to learn in school. I can't do it myself. But those who learned realize that they have to be saved by faith. Paul makes this statement when he says, not all Israel is of Israel. Not every Jew is a true Jew in heart. Some of them are only by name and by, by uh, uh, history history but not by belief in heart. So they are heirs, I'm saying, first of all. Secondly, they are children, child slaves, when they're under the law. So you notice that word, as long as he is a child, doesn't differ at all from a slave? Well, when that Jew then is trying to learn what God wants him to learn for those 1,500 years, he's not born again. He's, he's just a child like every other child. He has to come to that point. But I want you to notice that word child. It's kind of interesting. It's the word infant, the smallest child that you can think of, this infant. There are lots of words in the New Testament for child, children, and so forth, but this one means a very small child. I'll give you two examples because I want you to understand where Israel was in that Old Testament situation. Matthew eleven twenty five. 25. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. This word, napios, babes. Another place it's used is Matthew 21, 16. Do you hear what these are saying, Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants? You have perfected praise. Sucklings, the old version has. Nursing infants, napios. That's the word here. So Israel was like an infant. Israel was a small child who doesn't understand anything but they're under the instruction and the help of nurses and tutors and stewards and people that will help them along, unable to believe, unable to become true children of God, even though they are the people of God, even though they are God's chosen nation, they're still like small children, but they're Lord of all. Now, the word Lord or master here at the end of the at the end of the uh verse says that they're like this until the father says okay it's time you've graduated you're out of school all of us you know when i started kindergarten at five years old i was ready at six years old to say okay dad i'm done you know i remember when when our daughter rebecca she went to she went to first grade and she came home one time literally and said "Uh, i'm done (laughs) and i said what do you mean well we learned z we learn A through Z. I'm done. Well, <laughs> we're, we're going to see in, in a minute that that's exactly what the elements of the world mean here. We'll, we'll look at that in, in, in just a second. A time appointed by the father. No, dad says, no, when you graduate from 12th grade, sorry. <laughs> when you graduate from 12th grade, then you'll be done. And God says, when the time, when I say so, that's when you'll be done. But notice that, that word elements here. Uh, in verse 3, right at the end, we're in bondage under the elements of the world, Stoichia. That word elements will appear again in verse 9 where they are called the weak and beggarly elements. We have that in Colossians 2.20, the basic principles of the world, or the older version has the rudiments of the world. Stoichia, in its very meaning, means in a row. Isn't that interesting? In a row. And evidently what it refers to is the most basic of learning procedures and we call it the ABCs. Have you learned your ABCs? That's what my daughter Rebecca thought she, she was done when she learned her ABCs. Letters in a row. You put letters in a row to form words, and you put words in a row to form sentences, and sentences in a row to form paragraphs, and paragraphs in a row to form books, and so forth. You, the stoichia, the basic elements, the ABCs, that's what you have to learn. You start out in first grade, you end up in 12th grade. Well, I'm not so sure these days kids at 12th grade have gotten the ABCs uh, either, but they're supposed to by by 12. So what was the law? What was that Old Testament law? Israel, let me teach you your ABCs. Let me teach you what is right and what is wrong. Let me give you 10 commandments that you won't be able to keep so that I can point to you and say, you have sin in your life. You can't do it on your own. You can't be saved by your own works. Those were the ABCs that they needed to learn. So I just point out, first of all, in these three, uh, Jews under the law. And again, in verse 3, Paul makes this application. He says, and so we, he includes himself, of course, as a Jew and as one who, you know, was a Pharisee of a Pharisee, and yet lost, wasn't he? He, he had gotten to 12th grade under the, under the law, but hadn't learned anything. So he says, and we, he says, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the law, but when the fullness of time had come. Now, what did he say about the time? Well, back in verse 2, Until the time appointed of a father. When the father says, okay, your schooling is over, now you have to be an adult. And isn't that interesting that we go from that explanation in the first three verses to those two Christmas verses of verses four and five. I have have used this as a text many times as a Christmas message. And we, we quote these words. Uh, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons, full-blown sons, not infants any longer. So Paul continues this with the Christmas story. You know what Christmas means, folks? The reason why we talk about it here in church, the reason why we as believers celebrate it, is because this is when we graduated. This is when we realized what school was all about. Jesus Christ sent his son that I might have eternal life. I can't do it on my own. I can't get to heaven on my own. God sent his son that I might believe, and I've learned how to believe. Now, let me point out a couple things. First of all, law to grace I have under there. Again, I said that was the big change, wasn't it? From Old Testament to New Testament. From law to grace. Here you are under law. You're trying to do the right things. You're trying to keep the law. But you, you can't quite understand why. You're trying to see what I'm doing. Transition over to grace and now we have the birth of Jesus Christ we have the death the burial the resurrection of Jesus Christ we look at everything plainly we look right back at the at the crucifixion of Christ and there's no excuse for us we've graduated we're adults we can see the truth we can see what god was pointing to all of those years in the old testament we look at it plainly we have full knowledge and understanding of eternal life right now you look at it as a sinner you look at it as someone who is not saved, you are looking at the truth of God, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can either accept it or not accept it, but you can't deny it. It's the truth of God. It's a historical fact. Now, notice the fullness of time. Again, the Father says, you're in school till I say you're not. <laughs> you're in school until I say it's time for you to leave school. God said it's time for Jesus Christ to come. It's time for school to be done. It's time for the law to be over. And we have seen that time and time again in the book of Galatians. The law is done. The law is over. And now the fullness of time has come. Now, again, you hope that by 12th grade or maybe you, in college or maybe in graduate school, whenever you, you went to school, you hope that by the time graduation comes, you pass all your exams, Right? You hope that you're smart enough to get out of school. Well, we've gotten out of school. And what we know is what Jesus Christ did for us. Let me remind you of the fullness of time. Was it the fullness of time when Jesus came? You know, I think our generation would probably say, oh, no, that was such a backward time. Back then, uh, we know so much more today. We have so many more advantages. We We could have spread this gospel around the world and instantly if Jesus just had come in our day. No, the fullness of time was when he came. God knew what he was doing. Law needed to end. Grace needed to begin. Number one, all the prophecies pointed toward it. The prophecies of the Old Testament, many different kinds of prophecies pointed to Jesus being born of a virgin at that time, uh, at the end of Daniel, 69 weeks, and so forth. All of that pointed to the same thing. Consider the Roman and Greek world. We talk about the Roman roads, right? Uh, All roads lead to Rome, as, as we say today. That's because Rome made travel worldwide. You could travel anywhere, and Paul did. When he went out on his missionary journeys, he could walk anywhere, he could, ta- he could sail anywhere. Sure, it was slower than we have today, but probably better than we have today. And so the Roman roads were there. And then consider the Greek language. God let this young man named Alexander conquer the world and bring with him the Greek language, which when Jesus came into this world, the whole world spoke that language. And you could go anywhere and speak that language and preach the gospel, because it was part of the fullness of time not only that the jewish diaspora that is the spreading out of the jews all over the world so that when they did get saved and come to god that witness was everywhere the jewish expectation even of the of the messiah you know we read in that christmas story that the decree went out from caesar augustus that all the world should be taxed and here was You know, Caesar Augustus, and by the way, he was a pretty good Caesar compared to all the rest of them. Uh, That's why they gave him the title Augustus. He was an august person. Uh, He thought that he was controlling the world. He thought, I'll give a decree that everyone has to go back to the city where they grew up uh, to do a polling tax. Little did he know that God had planned him from the foundation of the world. And God said, okay, Augustus, now it's time for you to give this decree because I need that Jewish couple up there in Galilee. I need them down in Bethlehem. So you give the decree to everyone in the world because this is what I need. I mean, God, God was controlling the whole thing because this was the fullness of time that God said, my son is going to come. And then why did he come verse 5, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption of full-blown sons. No longer are you infants. No longer do you not see and not understand. Look back at the death, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and become a son of God, a child of God. You know what that means. You know where they are. I think to myself, how sad it is these days, how sad it is that we have Christmas without Christ in it. What an affront to the creator God that must be. The fullness of time, the time when God the Father said, I will send forth my son now. I will send him into this world so that the world sees it clearly, so that the world rejoices that they're no longer under all of the shadows of the old. Now they're in full-blown light. They will rejoice that Messiah has come. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. That's the song I was trying to think of the other night. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Well, has the world done that? It didn't take them long, did they? to get to a place that it's almost against the law in our country to mention Christ at Christmas in some places. Isn't that terrible? And you can watch the Christmas movies. You can watch the Christmas pageants. You can watch all of the programs about Christmas, and they will talk about presents, and they will talk about family, and they'll talk about friendships, but they will never mention Jesus Christ unless they accidentally sing a song that happens to have his name in it. I wonder what God the Father thinks. I wonder what he thinks when he said to us, you've graduated, you're smart enough, here's the obvious answer, accept it, and the world says, no, I don't believe it. I don't think so. So, notice then the first two thoughts. Here were the Jews under the law in school, here's the transition from childhood to adulthood, but then... Thirdly, he pictures then these Jews and what they should have understood, that is, the Jews as true sons under grace. Look at verses 6 and 7. But because you are sons, now let me stop and say, he's writing to, to Jewish Christians. He's writing to believers in that area of Galatia. He's pointing back to them. He's been up there. He preached the gospel to them. They got saved. And here they are tempted by Judaizers to go back under that, go back to school, go back under the shadows and the, and the clouds of the Old Testament and practice the law, practice circumcision, practice all of those things in order to be saved. And he says to them, no, you know that you have become sons of God. Again, verse 6. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of His Son into your hearts so that you as believers now can call Him Father, Abba Father, Daddy Father, if you will. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, weos. Remember that word we've defined, weos, a full-blown son, heir with all the rights and privileges. And if a son than an heir of God through Jesus Christ. Now notice my two points here under these two verses, and so let me explain. The baptism of the Spirit, yes. As a matter of fact, notice twice in our text you have the expression, God sent forth. What is it? Number one, God sent forth His Son in verse four. Number two, God sent forth His Spirit, verse six. What does that mean? It means... That God sent His Son for the whole world. God sent His Son at Christmas time, if you will, to die for the sins of the whole world. Can anyone raise their hand and say, Jesus did not die for me? <laughs> not in this room. And the fact is, nowhere else, because He died for the sins of the whole world. God sent forth His Son for everyone, but not everyone accepts Him. But when a person accepts Him, God sends forth his spirit, and that spirit came into you at that moment and regenerated you and made you a full-blown child of God. No longer under the rudiments of the world, no longer under all of that old shadowy stuff, but a full-blown graduated child of God with full understanding of who you are and what you've done. That's what he's talking about here. So, I think of Lois and Eunice and Timothy, saved up there in Galatia. Paul goes up there and preaches, and here's, here's Lois, who now is a grandmother. and She's grown up under that law, and she sees the clearness of the gospel message, and she accepts Christ as her Savior. And her daughter Eunice and now has this little boy named Timothy. And Eunice says, I see it too, and she accepts Christ as Savior. And they have taught Timothy as a little boy under school, brought him up from the time he was an infant, from a child that has known the Holy Scriptures, brought him up from that time, and now Timothy says, I see it too. Just a young man, probably a teenager, I see it too. And how many more in Galatia were like that? And they all received the Spirit of God. And Paul's saying to these these, uh, Jews, You came out from under that. God sent His Son for you, and when you accepted Him, God sent His Spirit into your heart. Now, this is the beginning of the church. This is the end of Judaism. It's the beginning of the body of Christ, of those who are true sons of God, those with full understanding. I know that there are still Jews, and... and, I I always have to put this footnote in there. Don't think that I'm saying God is done with the Jews. He's going to reestablish that nation. But even in the kingdom of God, they're going to have to come to him in personal faith in Jesus Christ in order to even be in the kingdom of God. You've got to come that way. Judaism as a school is closed. The door's locked. Nobody goes to school that way anymore. Now you are looking at the full-blown son of God and you have to decide whether to accept him or not. And so it's the, it's the beginning of the church, the beginning of this family of God. And you know what? Lois, and Eunice, and Timothy, all those believers in Ephesus that also were in Asia, all of them are our brothers and sisters in Christ. One day we will see them in heaven. One day we will reign with them for a 1,000 years on this earth as the church, as the wife of, of the lord jesus christ it's a great thing now i can't wait so has the has the holy spirit come into your heart has he regenerated you he baptized you into the body of christ and and i'll say in a minute it's a greater thing than being a jew it's a greater thing than being an american it's a greater thing than being any nationality to become part of the family of god and have eternal life. But notice, a full son. Verse seven. Therefore, you believers, Jew or Gentile, you believers are no longer a slave, but a son. You're not, as one commentator uh, liked to put it, you're not slaving anymore. You're not slaving under the elements of the world. You're not slaving under the law and its and its uh, rules. But you are a full-blown son, graduated, an heir, and fully an adult. And if a son, then you're an heir of God and of Jesus Christ. Again, I say, these, even these Galatians, Galatian Jews had to realize, yes, something new has happened. A big change has taken place. I am a child of God. You are my brothers and sisters in Christ. We we are the bride of Christ that one day will be the the very bride of the Son of God. Nothing is greater than this. Nothing is greater than that. In uh, Romans chapter 11 and verses 11 to 14, let me read these to you. I say then, have they, that is the Jews, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. In other words, God has a plan for them. But through their fall... To provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Amen for that. Now, if their fall is the riches of the world and their failure, the riches of the Gentiles, in other words, it's because they crucified our Messiah that you and I have eternal life. It's because of the failure of that nation. We have eternal life through our crucified Lord how much more their fullness, he says. Boy, when when he gives Israel all of their rewards in the kingdom of God, how much greater even will that be when that time comes? All right, let me me go quickly so I have time to finish these last two thoughts as we turn our thoughts to the Gentiles now. And I think this is so in verse 8 as he begins to talk about the Gentiles who didn't know God. But then, indeed, when you did not know God, I think he's speaking more to the Gentile believers now, you serve those which by nature are not God. You were strangers without the covenants of promise. Ephesians 2:11 says, Therefore remember that you once were Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the Jews, that at that time you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You had no hope as a Gentile. You had no hope on this other side of the planet of ever finding eternal life, except God said it's time for graduation. It's time for Jesus Christ to come and display himself to the whole world. And because he did that, You Gentiles have hope. Now, you were also a a slave because you served those which by nature are not gods. Again, the commentator said, you slaved under those. You have your own gods. You have your own problems. And you Gentiles worship things that by nature are not gods. I I want to say something about that word nature. When he says, by, you serve things which by nature are not God's, what he means when he says by nature is basically, you serve things not in the way God created them. What God says is truth. What God has created is right. The way God said to live is the right way. And when you do that some other way, it becomes what we call idolatry. Well, there's a beautiful tree. God made that tree for shade. He made it perhaps for food. Well, I'm going to carve it up and make a statue out of it. And when I make the statue out of it, I'm going to bow down and worship the statue. That's not the way God made it to be. As a matter of fact, I want to read you these words from Romans chapter 1, where we have the word natural there. And think of these Gentiles who were living in any way they wanted to live. Romans 1, 21 and 23. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God. Neither were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Now, verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. Even their women exchanged, here's our word, the natural use for what is against nature. He's talking about lesbianism there. That is not the way God made you, and it's not the way God made life to be. It is against nature, the unnatural use. Likewise also, men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one for another, men with men, committing what is shameful, or he says, unnatural, and receiving the penalty for it. That's not the way God made you. It's not the way God made life to be. And he's saying here in Galatians 4, when you were unbelievers... You had your own problems of sin. You were doing things that are not, or what are against the way God made them to be, against nature, sinful. So, what do you need? You need the Lord Jesus Christ, don't you? If we skipped over to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verses 4 through 6, it would say this Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world. And that there are no other gods but one. For even if they, there are so-called gods, with a small g, so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, there are many gods, small g, and many lords, small l. Yet there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we live. When you take anything that God has created to be a certain way and you twist that into your own way, it's called idolatry. You might as well cut down a tree and carve a statue and bow down on your knees and worship it. When you do things that are against what God did and the way God made things. Now, Paul is simply saying to these Gentiles, that was you. And, and it certainly was. You don't have to read far into the Roman Empire history or the Greek uh, culture to realize that's, that was them. That's what they are doing. But let me skip ahead then to the last, the last thought, and that's in verses 9 through 11. But now, after you have known God, you Gentiles, you've come to God through Jesus Christ. After you have known God, and he stops and says, or rather are known by God. Isn't it great that God knows you? It's one thing to say, I know God. I I know what he says in this book. I see his handiwork everywhere. I know God is out there. That's a wonderful truth. That's a wonderful thing to have in your heart. But stop and think that God knows you. You are known of God. He knows your thoughts. He knows your every action. He watches over your life in every way. That's an even greater thing, uh, of course. Now now notice my question marks under my three points if you're looking at the outline. I have three question marks here. I think he's asking basically three questions. Now, you know God and you're known of God. How is it that you turn, notice this word again twice? How is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You want to go back to bondage again, you Gentiles? Here's the picture. They were enslaved by the, own, the, the lusts of their own flesh. They were enslaved by their own worshiping of idols. And the gospel came to them, and they got saved, and they were free from all of that. And then these Judaizers come into Galatia. And the Judaizers say, oh no, you're not free. You've got to keep the law. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to keep the feast days. You've got to go back under the elements of the ABCs. He uses the word elements here. And notice again that he says, he calls them, you want to go again to weak and beggarly elements Weak and beggarly elements. Now, they probably had their own weak and beggarly elements back in their old Gentile world. And sometimes people go back into the old life that they got saved out of weak and beggarly elements. The word weak, asthenia, means a sickness you might have, like a sickness unto death. Someone who is weak can't do anything. Under the old law, you can't do anything. That is, you have no ability to save yourself. And beggarly, this word beggarly means extreme poverty, beggarly. You have nothing to give. All you can do is take. That's where you are under the Old Testament. That's where you are trying to earn your own way to heaven, the weak and beggarly elements. And you want to go back to that again. Saved out of Jewish idolatry or, or Gentile idolatry, you want to go back to Jewish idolatry and try to save yourselves. You want to return to that again? And you desire, the end of verse 9, again to be in bondage? And again, my second question mark to those weak and beggarly elements. And then notice verse 10. You want to go back and observe days and months and seasons and years. Yeah, I want to, I want to keep the Sabbath again. <laughs> I want to keep all the rules of the Sabbath and see if I can't gain eternal life by that. I want to mark the feast days on my calendar and make sure I keep them so that I have eternal life. The months, yeah, the new moon comes. You know, we're about to see the new moon in the sky. Okay, the, uh, when the new moon comes, we have to do this and do that. Seasons, how about all the feast days? Let's keep the Passover. Let's keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Let's do all of the, the un- Feasts of Unleavened Bread. Let's keep them all. And how about the years? How about the, the seventh Sabbath year or the year of Jubilee? Let's keep all of the years. That's what these Judaizers were saying to them. Oh, you want to, you've escaped the beggarly elements of your own Gentile background, but you want to go back under all of that? What does he say in verse 11? Don't don't ever say Paul was never afraid of anything. Paul was afraid of this. I'm afraid of you because I wonder if my labor among you wasn't in vain. I wonder if maybe, number one, if you... Are even truly born again, if you can do such things. And number two, I'm afraid that this, that this leaven will come in and leaven the whole lump of the church. I'm afraid of you, and I'm afraid for you. You know, if they are truly believers, and they decide to add the law to the gospel, it's called heresy. Oh, well, you can be saved by faith, but you've got to be baptized, too, you know, to go to heaven. Oh, you, you, got to, you can be saved by faith, but oh yeah, you know, you have to speak in tongues too if you're going to go to heaven. Adding things, we call it, that's legalism, of course. Adding things to grace, yeah, they would do that. Now, there's apostasy and there are those who really aren't true believers. And when they see a way to go back and exalt themselves, then they'll go back to that old life and they'll come up with a system that exalts themselves. We call that apostasy. They walk away because they've never been born again. Now, I'm done because it's 1130. No, I'm done because that's the end of our passage. I, I struggled with how to end this sermon and apply it to our lives. But let me try this. We have children, and they're born into our homes. And we raise them under our tutelage. We raise them under our stewardship. They're in school, if you will, while they're in our home. And we teach them from the time they're very small. We teach them what God demands and what God wants. And let me say to all you young uh, parents and to all of us grandparents as well, the family and the church are God's two instruments to help you teach your children correctly. That family and how it serves God and what it does under its own roof and behind its own doors, that is God's ordained unit to help you raise those kids. Secondly is the church of Jesus Christ. It's here in everything the church does to teach those young ones what God wants, not to entertain Not just to be, you know, entertain me and I'll learn a Sesame Street education. It's what does God want? And sometimes that's tough learning. Now, the age of accountability comes about. The age when a child becomes old enough to understand that they need to accept Christ as their Savior. Are we prepared at that time to lead them to Christ? Do we know how to give, to give them the gospel at that age? Are they even ready because for five years, six years, we have drilled into those little minds and hearts the necessity of accept, accepting Christ as Savior? Then, graduation, real graduation from, from school comes. And in our culture, about 18 years old, those kids say, well, I'm an adult. Now I'll go live on my own. Okay, will they? Have you been successful? Have you taught them correctly? Will they go back under the weak and beggarly elements of the sinful culture that is pulling them aside? There's nothing so danger to your kids as as peers. There's nothing so danger uh, to your kids as the culture that is out there saying, no, come back with us, come with us. Will they go that way? And often kids stray out that way a little bit. You know what it does? It does three things. Number one, it leaves a question. Are they truly born again then? If they're truly born again, it doesn't mean they won't stray away, but it means they'll come back. It means they'll come back to God. But if they're not, they may never come back. Has your training been successful? The second thing it does is it hurts families and churches. When our young people leave, when our young people say, it's not for me anymore, That was when I was a child, but as an adult, that's not for me. And they walk away. It hurts the family. It hurts the church. It hurts the world because that witness is gone. And the third danger is we lose them to the ministry of Jesus Christ in the world. Where are the witnesses? Where are the ambassadors? Where are the preachers? Where where are the men and women who live for God? We lose them. So are we... A lot like what Paul is saying to the Galatian believers. You've been under school, but are you going to follow through? Are you going to come to true faith? Then are you going to walk with God in your life? We have a responsibility as parents and grandparents and all the rest to see that they do. And God help us to do it because this is a tough world. And the weak and beggarly elements are really weak and really beggarly. And they want our kids. All right, stand with me if you will. That quieted us down quite a bit right there. We need that. All right, let's pray together. Father, now, Father, we have read this great passage, and we have realized what faith in Jesus Christ is and how wonderful it is to make us a full-blown child of God. So, Father, I pray that you would help us in in our preaching of the gospel, that we would make that clear. Maybe there's someone today who's never heard the gospel and just heard it, whether by my voice or somebody else's, and said, I need Jesus Christ to be my Savior, to save me from my sin. I can't do it myself. And the Holy Spirit of God is sent forth into his heart. Thank you for that. And, Father, as I have tried to mention, help us. To raise our children to raise our kids to serve you and father those that walk away and stray for a while brought under the pressure bring them back and show them father where the true joy of life is i pray father you'd bless families bless churches bless those people that are striving in this world to do right and help us as your children father to pass on our faith to the next generation. So bless us in this. Speak to our hearts in every way that we need. May you have your will and your way in every heart. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We sing an invitation always, of course, and as we sing, our invitation's open for anyone to come even while we sing or after we sing when our service is over. If you have a need, I'm still here. You meet me at the front. Let's take care of that need. Gordon, come and lead us in the song.